here in the Word this morning. Heavenly Father, um, Heavenly Father, there's just so many things on my heart and my mind this morning, Lord. I pray that you would take them away and help me to focus on you and on uh, sharing the treasures that are in your Word. I pray that you would help me to be uh, be faithful in speaking the truth in love. And Lord God, that you would help me to um, to just keep my eyes on the cross, Lord, as I do this, on, on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for us. Um, I pray that you would give me grace in this, and I pray for the folks who are here that that um, you would touch their hearts, that I wouldn't be a stumbling block, but that they would hear from you, Lord, that they would hear your your heart and hear your your word and hear from your Son in everything that, that is spoken this morning from the pulpit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, it is uh, Palm Sunday, and um, we're not going to wave again. I have used that joke to the fullest. Um, I, I actually kind of wanted to start out talking about Palm Sunday, but we're not going to be staying in that text this morning. Um, I, I picked a specific series to work through, and I'm sticking with it, but kind of kind of lined up unintentionally well, like like God knew better than I did in advance. Um, Palm Sunday. So so what's going on um, on the on the 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 day that Christ arrives in Jerusalem? Um, this is the beginning of Holy Week, and as Christ arrives in Jerusalem, it would have been the first day of the week, he um, is greeted at the gates. Um, and, and he would have been coming down um, a hill and up another hill. Uh, and, and folks, all right, it's easy to imagine Jesus traveling there with his 12 followers and that's it. But because this is right on top of Passover, there would have been thousands and thousands thousands of people traveling to Jerusalem. And so there's a constant stream of travelers. Um, the city is overwhelmed. It's as close to a first century traffic jam as could possibly happen. Um, and, and he is on his way to Jerusalem, knowing that he's going to the cross, knowing that he's going to, to kind of the culmination of his ministry on earth. Um, and as he arrives, he knows he's going to be greeted in a big way. Now, um, at this time, first century Jerusalem, actually first century Israel, is sort of an ongoing powder keg, right? There are, like the Romans came in and conquered the country many years before, and the Jews hated the Romans. They actually hated a lot of people, but the Romans especially, because the Romans um, were running the show. They would conquered Israel. They didn't like them there. They didn't like being subjected to Roman law. They didn't like paying Roman taxes. They didn't like anything about the Romans. And... So there is this sort of constant milling around. There are terrorist actions on a regular basis where guys would walk up to Roman soldiers and stab them in crowds. The Sakari were the guys who would do that. Um, there were uprisings and rebellions. And, and in fact, actually, the whole country is decimated about 40 years after this day um, because they, the Romans are just like, all right, that's enough. You know, we're just going to kill all of you and everybody who doesn't die. We're going to send you somewhere else. We're going to outlaw the Jewish religion in Israel and we're going to destroy the temple and wipe the whole place out. And, and in fact, actually, I don't think Jerusalem was a city again for many years. Um, they leveled it. And so as Jesus shows up, there are all of these people who are saying, well, Jesus is this chosen one that God sent. And everybody is expecting a conqueror. Right? Because, I mean, actually, you just flash back about 500 years. There's a guy named Judas the Hammer Maccabee. The Hammer wasn't his actual name. It was a nickname. By the way, if you ever want to give me a nickname, 
That's on the list. Um, Judas the Hammer Maccabee drove the Persians out of, out of Israel, like against all odds, just like 500 years before this. And I think a lot of folks were expecting another Judas Maccabee. I think they were expecting another, you know, action hero. And so when Jesus shows up, people keep asking him, hey, is it time? Hey, is it time? Even when he's about to go and get arrested, Peter's like, hey, we have swords. You know, and Jesus is like, all right, that's enough of that. Put those away. You know, like they, they don't, they're always expecting him to do this. And on Palm Sunday is sort of the beginning of it. Like he, like, approaches Jerusalem. The crowds come out. They've heard all about him. He's healing folks. He's teaching, you know, amazing stuff. He's, he's upsetting the apple cart. He is, you know, everybody is excited. And they are expecting, they're expecting a fight, Right? They are expecting a big, serious brawl in which the bad guys are beaten and kicked out. And, and you know, the anticipation is there. And when they come out and greet him on Palm Sunday, they wave palm leaves and they lay down coats in the paths of his, of his you know, of him and his followers. And they, you know, they, they praise him and they worship him. And this scene, this palm leaves and, and covering the ground, is a is a practice. Now, today we hear that, and it's a little strange, right? It's a little like a ticker tape parade back then. And you would do this. Actually, ticker tape doesn't even exist anymore, does it? Like, that's not even a thing anymore, so it's an out-of-date reference. It's a, it's a parade, right? Like, they are excited. He is here. He is the hero. The day is coming. And as he's approaching the city, they, they celebrate. And the way they celebrate is in the manner you would celebrate a conquering hero. And, like, if you can imagine an emperor or a general riding into town on a big white warhorse stallion, you know, surrounded by his army and the treasures he's won on the way, like, that's the kind of thing they're expecting, right? Like, this, you know, Palm Sunday is a recreation of that. And Jesus, who I think had a terrific sense of humor, rode in on a donkey, I mean, if you can kind of imagine the offset, hey, here comes, you know, our hero, our tough guy, our, you know, it, it's I, the thing I, as I was preparing for the sermon, the thing that kept coming to mind, um, I like old, you know, I, I watch old boxing highlights sometimes, you know, if I get stuck with something, I'll watch old boxing highlights because, you know, I don't know why. And you always see these guys walking down to the ring surrounded by their tough guys and carrying belts and everything. And you can imagine, like, the guy walking down to the, the ring in, like, a robe and fl- fuzzy slippers, kind of like the opposite of what everybody expects. You know, cute little bunnies staring up at him. Christ enters Jerusalem on a donkey doing the opposite of what everybody expects. This day we are celebrating the fact that Christ was not what we expected He is not what we wanted. He is what we needed. Because oftentimes God does things that we don't expect. Oftentimes God acts in ways that we back up and we think, but this is what I wanted, but this is what I'm giving you. Does that make sense? Um, As I was preparing this message this week, I came across three separate instances of politicians being called either Jesus or our Messiah. And actually, a celebrity as well, like a pretty prominent thing I was watching, and, and somebody was giving a speech about this particular celebrity, and they, he, he's like Jesus. You know, and, and we in our world, we, we, we aren't far from this. We want a Jesus. We want a Savior. 
we want somebody who's going to come out and beat up the bad guys, right? We want somebody who's going to come out and crush everybody who is evil. And we're all susceptible to this. As we dive into our text today, this is going to be on Jesus' third prediction um, of, his, of his coming death. Um, understand that this one, of all of the ones that Matthew kind of puts together for us, emphasizes the humility of Christ and the antithesis of what, um, like, like how far away what we got is from what we expected. Are you all with me? And so we're going to dive into it. This is the, there are three formal announcements, like Christ, from the point where Peter says, hey, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus turns around and says, you know, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And like, from that point forward, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. It's the hinge point in the book. We've talked about this three times now. Um, it's the hinge point in the book. Jesus is heading to the cross from that point forward, and he starts it out with an announcement, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to be executed, but on the third day I'm going to r- rise. And then he does it again, like midway through. And right before he arrives in Jerusalem, he does it a third time. And the, the disciples, again, hearing it over and over again, still aren't quite getting it. Um, you kind of wonder if he was traveling with toddlers, you know, you tell them, do this, and they don't understand it, like, this is what's going on, and they don't hear you. Um, They just did not perceive and understand effectively. And all the way up to the point where Christ is arrested, they're ready to fight. And they're ready to see this conquering hero. Um, And what they got was a a savior on a donkey. Um, So we're going to dive into our text here. Um, And actually, Matthew, so now when you read the Gospels, almost always things are lined up very intentionally. Like, you can look at the surrounding material, and you can get all kinds of interesting insight as to the text you're reading. And this is a great example of this. The first part of Matthew 20 is about the par- like is the parable of the vineyard and the workers, all right? And, like, Christ tells a story about a man who has a vineyard, and he goes out first thing in the morning and gathers up workers, and he sets them to work in the field, and he has an agreed-upon rate he's going to pay them. And then later in the day he gets more, and later in the day he gets more, and later in the day he gets more. And then finally, with like a half hour of work left, he collects up a handful more, and he sends them out to work. And then when it's time to pay them, he pays the guys who work the least amount first, and he pays them a day's wage. And then the next group, he pays a day's wage. And then the next group, he pays a day's wage. And he finally gets to the people who've been working there all day after... The guys have been working for 30 minutes, and the guys have been working for two hours. The 30-minute guys are all pastors. Um, the guys who have been working for, like, most of the day, and then the guys who've worked, like, the full eight or probably 12 hours, actually, if we're going to be realistic to first-century labor standards. Like, they have been there all day laboring and toiling, and they get paid the same amount as the guys, as the pastors got. And they back up, and they're like, wait a minute. This isn't fair. And Jesus, or, and the, the guy, the, the, the boss is like, well, no, I told you how much I was going to pay you. What does it bother you that I'm generous with those guys? And there's, you know, like, like the last line in this, and I think this is kind of an analogy for heaven, like um, where he's talking about, you know, the, the, the ones who, you know, we, we receive equal reward. Salvation is what it is. Um, I'm not preaching that text this morning. I'm not going to dive into it. I haven't exegeted it thoroughly, so that's off the cuff. Um, 
but the passage ends with this. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Now, this is the opposite of the world, right? Our attitude is not this, right? I, I love going and eating lunch with my daughter at the school because as I stand there and wait, I watch the classes go to get their lunches. And what is the thing that they are doing as they're walking down to the cafeteria? They're cutting in line. You know why? Because as much as we like the idea that the last is first, the guy who goes through the line first actually gets his lunch first, right? Um, when we look at the bad guys in the world, we want that bad guy crushed and we want power to do it, right? That's why, that's why this nonsense of such and such politician is our savior. He is our Messiah. No, he's not. But we have this illusion that worldly power and worldly wealth and worldly success and worldly recognition is the equivalent of good in our lives. And it just isn't. It just isn't. What Christ says here, listen, the last will be first and the first will be last. Um, he's going to unpack it a little bit um, later on. But, but understand, um, being the wealthiest, being the best, being the smartest, being the, the, the most popular, being the guy who gets all kinds of recognition and honor and everything else, it is not the way of the kingdom. Um, so we're going to jump over here. I'm coming back to this idea, okay? It's not abandoned. We're going to come back to it, but this is our, our text for this morning, uh, and it's the third instance of Christ announcing his death. He says, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. So they're going up, by the way, because Jerusalem's on a mountain, right? Like it's actually uphill. Um, so they're going up to Jerusalem Pulls him aside. It's coming, guys. We're going to get there. I'm going to be delivered over. Um, in the previous announcement, he said, I'll be betrayed. Um, so I'll be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will contemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. This sounds like a conquering hero on a war horse, right? Um, mocked. I, I think um, it's a powerful thing that in the ancient world, if you mocked a king, he could have you skinned alive. Right? Like, if you look at, there are instances in the Old Testament where people mock God and, like, really nasty things come out of it. You know, or actually, Elijah, there's a great... Um, I'm glad Brooke isn't here to hear this. There's this great spot in the book of Elijah where Elijah's walking along and a bunch of children make fun of the fact he's bald and a, a bear comes out and eats them. It's just like the weirdest story. Like, oh, you know, they were in Glacier. Um, but but um, like mocking is kind of, kind of this ugly thing. It's not the sort of thing you would be able to do to like God's face, right? But Christ is announcing, hey, showing up. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be um, made fun of. I'm going to have a crown of thorns pounded onto my head like, like this is coming. I will be mocked and humiliated, flogged. Now, flogging in the ancient world was a punishment unto itself. It was generally the case that you would, like, if you committed a crime, they would flog you because it was bad enough that, like, it was enough. Um, and actually, if you were flogged, oftentimes it killed you. 
It was really common for flogging to be a death sentence. And it was, in fact, illegal for a Roman citizen to be flogged more than 40 times because if you flog them more than 40 times, you almost certainly killed them. Christ went through that and then some, right? And they would have this long leather strap with, like, bits of bone or broken plate or whatever woven into it. And they would swing it like a bat and it would wrap around you. And then they'd pull it out and it was really bad, right? Flogging, bad. Not the sort of thing the Son of God endures. Not the sort of thing a conquering hero endures. Not the sort of thing Judas Maccabee would have gone through, right? He was the hammer. And Jesus is even better. And then I'll be crucified. Crucifixion was such a horrible crime that the cross and crucifixion was actually considered to be a swear word in some places in the ancient world. It was like cussing, Right? And so, like, you can say, the pastor said a bad word today. Um, Crucifixion was um, easily one of the most horrible ways to die, like, come up with. It would sometimes take weeks to die this way. Um, The Romans were known for treating people who were being crucified, like treating them medically so they would live longer, so they would suffer longer, right? Like, it was an awful death. And so for Christ to turn around and say, mocked, flogged, crucified, he's announcing, hey, I'm going to be brought low, and not just low, but really low. Um, So then the passage transitions, and Matthew does this on purpose. Now watch this. This is important. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, she asked, or he asked. She said, grant that one of my two sons, of the two sons of mine, may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. Is this a small request? Like, <laughs> I, I got to think that, you know, James and John are kind of like embarrassed. Mom, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is mom going out and saying, hey, my son is going to pitch in this weekend's game. Well, he plays left field, and he does that because he can't throw the ball. No, pitching, and it's going to happen, right? I mean, they're going to sit at either side of you. Like, do this thing. And then Christ responds, don't you know what you were asking? He said, or Jesus, said to, Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered, because it's easy to talk big when you have no idea what's about to happen, right? Um, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So like the, the rest of the disciples hear about it and they're like, man, where do those guys get off? That's my spot. Right? Like, don't they know that I am the favorite? Don't they know that I belong at the right hand of the father? Don't they know that I am awesome? Um, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must also be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, here's the context. The first will be last and the last will be first. The Son of Man is coming 
All right, you know, when we arrive in Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and the other leaders. He'll be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And now, hey, can we have places of honor in heaven? And Jesus responds, you're acting like Gentiles. You're acting like pagans. Don't you understand? To be really great in God's eyes, to be really lofty, to be really set on high is to be set low. And actually, again, Palm Sunday, right? Like we're talking about Christ as they gather around to raise him up in this way. Christ responds by riding a donkey and being humble and setting low. Not even a donkey, a baby donkey, right? I, I can imagine his feet were dragging on the ground as he went, you know, um, because Christ was humble. Christ was humble in obedience to the Father. He was humble in coming to save us. And we, my friends, we, my brothers, we, my sisters, are called to be humble. Um, The church changed the world in the 200 years following, actually in the 1,000 plus years following um, Christ's life, death, resurrection. Like the church changed the world, but it didn't do it with armies and it didn't do it with soldiers and it didn't do it with government power in fact it was illegal in most of the world for a long time and in fact if you go to like parts of the ancient world there are places where they met in secret underground one of the early symbols of christianity was the anchor right because it was easy to draw across and put an anchor on the bottom and say oh no i was just kidding it's an anchor um like or the fish because there were so many fishermen oh look it's just a fish it's not a you know um these guys they change the world by being humble and by being servants and by loving folks who, who hated them and by um, serving people who were, were like broken and lost. Um, Christianity, the church, like Christ's followers, um, they live this out in an amazing way, right? If they encountered something wrong and evil, they overcame it like by being Christ-like not by seizing power and running over the bad guys, right? Not by wielding the hammer, but by being Christ and making disciples and like changing hearts and changing the world as a result. And we get lost in this idea because it's easy to be of the flesh. It's easy to look and say, oh, Christ is coming and he is going to ride in on a war horse and he's going to kill every bad guy and it'll be awesome. And in reality, Christ rode in on a donkey, was crucified and was punished for you and me, which is actually awesome. It's why we can't brag, right? Like I can't stand up and say I am the best believer because in reality I'm kind of awful. I'm a sinner, lost, selfish, self-centered, wicked, the whole nine yards. Like I am that guy and I'm only of value because Christ died for me, because Christ poured his blood out on the cross. Um, Paul echoes this sentiment when he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being of the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing 
by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. I'm going to pause there. I've got a little more Philippians to read, but I'm going to pause there. Paul says, listen, if you want to be like part of the team, if you want to be part of a, like, like Christ's family, if you want to be part of the body of Christ, exemplify this. When you encounter somebody else, look at them and say, your needs are more important than mine. I'm going to tell you, I, I don't know many people who are great at this, and I know I'm bad at it, right? Um, but this is our target. Um, this is our goal. Our goal is to be servants. Our goal is to love. Our goal is to put our own needs aside. Our goal is to change hearts and minds through the power of the cross, through the power of servanthood, through the power of love, through the power of like Christ's life, death, resurrection, and his spirit living in us. This is what we're called to. And so when Christ arrived on that Palm Sunday, he arrived showing humility, right? Because honestly, if you flash back to how like folks followed God in the Old Testament, like there's an awful lot of fear involved. In fact, actually, after the exile, people wouldn't write out the name of God because they were so afraid of offending God. Like they would skip letters because if you wrote God's name wrong and you blasphemed, he might kill you, right? Um, they wouldn't say the name of God out of fear that they would accidentally say it improperly, and you could be executed for saying the name of God. Um, if you wrote God's name, you broke the pen and threw it away so you didn't accidentally write something impure with the same pen that you used to write God's name. And there's so much distance between us and a powerful conqueror, isn't there? Like a God who can crush you in a moment's notice like is a very different thing than a God who would die for your sins. And they are the same God, mind you. That's why Christ had to die for us because God's like justice and his holiness demands a very high standard and so he takes punishment in our place so that we can meet that standard because i can never be good enough and you can never be good enough and your neighbor ain't ever going to be good enough no one only in christ therefore god exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name that at the name of jesus every knee should bow in heaven on earth on under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. And so Christ is glorified because he humbled himself. Christ is glorified because he put himself low. Christ is glorified because he stepped out of heaven where he was worshipped by angels since the beginning of time to become one of us. We are saved because of that. We are made new because of that. And so what do we do with this? Well, over and over again, the lesson is in the, in the text, Right? Don't crush each other. When you encounter someone else, you say, I do not like this. Don't demand your own way. Right? When the guy next to you is running short and needs a shirt, give him one. When the guy next to you is dying inside, actually, that was um, um, one of the things that always impressed me about about um, things like AA. You go to an AA meeting and these guys will stand up and they're 10 years since they quit drinking and they'll tell these awful stories about themselves. And then suddenly the guy who has never, ever started the process and is like very bound up in his pride and too ashamed to say what he's done wrong, he hears everybody else do it and he can't, right? Don't pretend to be perfect. 
Sometimes the best ministry you can do for the guy next to you is to acknowledge that you're broken, that you have anxiety attacks, that you get depressed, that you're selfish, that you don't like your neighbor, that you hate this guy or that guy because of this, like that you struggle with your own sin. Sometimes it's the best thing we can do. Like the most loving thing we can do is to be humble, to be vulnerable. I, uh, Ephesians 5 is one of those great passages, and I've been thinking a lot about this one this week because I've read a lot about this text um, in different contexts. Um, the first line here is, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So when I work with the guy next to me, I submit to him out of reverence of Christ. Like, I love Jesus, therefore I love you. I love Jesus, therefore I serve you. I love Jesus, therefore I put my own glory aside and I humbly deal with you. And then he actually applies to marriage, and I think this is valuable, and it's why I'm including it. Um, Wives, submit to your, yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, oh, I didn't include the second half of this. I'm sorry. I did not do that on purpose. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And there are a lot of times husbands will read this and say, hey, my wife has to submit to me. Right? And in actuality, he goes on, Paul goes on, and he says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Right? And he talks about, like, cleansing her and sacrificing himself for her. Like, husbands, your job is to love your wife so much that you would die for her, that you would put your own sinful desires and your own self interest aside for her. Right? Um, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. I love my wife. Sometimes my wife needs time away, and I don't always like that. But you know what? I'm happy to do things for her because I love her, although I usually do it grumbling because I'm not a very good husband. My wife is better at that. She does awesome stuff for me sometimes just because she is awesome. And she does it without grumbling because she's better at this than I am. But this is how the church is designed to work. This is how marriage in the eyes of God is designed to work. This is how our relationships with each other is designed to work. We're to set our own desires aside, right? Where actually Paul says, outdo each other. Outdo each other in your acts of service with each other. If you're going to like try and boast how awesome you are, boast at the fact that like, hey, you know what? I made more sandwiches for you. Husbands. I use it as an example because it's a silly one, right? But I was patient and listened. I wanted to say my piece, but I put it aside. I wanted to demand my way, but I didn't. I wanted to, but I put your needs first. Is this easy? Nope. Right? I wanted to say my piece, but I didn't. Is it easy? Nope. And that's why Paul describes it as crucifying your flesh every day, right? (laughs) It's not taking it out and... You know, buying at lunch is not taking it for a nice walk. It is crucifying your flesh. Paul predicts, or Christ predicts his death. He says, listen, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to be brought low. When people tried to raise him up as a conquering hero, he brought himself low. When he stood before, before Herod, he refused to speak on his behalf. When he was arrested in the garden, 
Peter took out a sword and was going to fight for him. He says, I could call 10,000 angels. I could call legions upon legions of angels out of the sky to defend me. I ain't going to do it. And Christ hung on the cross. He was mocked by the people around him. And he, and he prayed to God and said, Father, forgive them. I, they don't know what they're doing. This week as we prepare for like Good Friday and Easter, my challenge for you is to look at your heart, look at your life, and ask yourself like, Number one, do I really appreciate how far Christ went for me? Like how much humility, how low he brought himself. Like, like this is the service the servant provides to us. Um, he suffers on our behalf. But number two, my challenge for you is to look at your heart and look at your life and look at your relationships and ask, am I emulating this? Does my wife see Jesus when she looks at me? Does my neighbor see Christ when he looks at me? Does my enemy know who Christ is because I serve him and love him? Am I putting my own way aside in order to serve and love? I'm going to close in prayer and I'll let you go. Heavenly Father, above all else, I ask that you would help us to be humble in our love and service toward each other. I pray that you would help us to be like Christ. Help us to recognize that he poured out his life for us um, and help us to, to live lives worthy of that sacrifice, Lord. Help us to, to live lives where we imitate Christ in our thoughts and our words and our deeds and our everything. Help us to be like Jesus. I pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Have a good day, folks.